This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. It is my pleasure to be concluding our sermon series on Jonah. Chap- on Jonah. We're going to be in chapter 4 today. And just for a little recap of Jonah, I'm sure many of you know the story of Jonah. But Jonah is called by God to be a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. But God does this by an interesting way of, of calling him actually not to Israel itself, but to their enemies. And Jonah says, I don't think that's what God actually wants. And so he goes the other way, tries to run away from what God wants. God finds him. He's in the middle of the Mediterranean, more or less, causes a storm uh, to come. And his answer to the sailors when they ask him what they should do is to throw him overboard. So he's still trying to run from God. So first as far west as he could go, then to the bottom of the ocean. God's in charge of the oceans, in charge of all the fish. So he sends a fish, swallows Jonah. He's like, you can try as you might. You're not going to be able to run away from me. I'm going to get you. So then we see somewhere in the fish, Jonah has this kind of partial change of heart. And we know that's partial because of what kind of comes after and what we're about to read today. But um, Jonah's in the fish and he's like, I was wrong to run away, run away from you. Save me and I'll do what you ask. God talks to the fish. The fish spits him out. <clears throat> and Jonah goes begrudgingly to Nineveh. He proclaims across the city and the city repents. And we're about to see how Jonah feels about all that and get a little peek uh, maybe inside of our own relationship with God. Margaret and I have recently seen a couple of movies about marriages failing. I know, it's like an unpleasant movie to watch. I don't know why we do, but we have. Um, And as we've watched these movies, there's, you know, these kind of existential questions that come to mind of like, man, Um, for for example, in, in, in one of the movies, um, there, there's a couple, and uh, at the birth of their daughter, their daughter dies during labor. And grief-stricken, uh, both of them isolate. And, and they can't, they, they both sin against each other, they both say things they shouldn't, they both do things that they shouldn't. They, they deepen this rift between them, and, and there's, no, there's no healing. And the story actually kind of ends that way. It's, it's quite, like, awful. It's, like, terrible to sit through. Um, but these questions that come out of that are, like, usually cause you to reflect on your own relationships. And so just beyond marriage, our friendships, our, our coworkers, uh, um, all of our relationships, excuse me, <clears throat> I feel like a little bit of a cough. I've been tested twice for COVID. No COVID. But I'm just going to say that now in case it just, like, comes. Um, so... Um, these questions that, that interrupt our lives, though, when we see things like this, are what if this person finds out who I really am? What if this person isn't going to be there for me? What happens when grief strikes us both, and in our grief blindness, we lash out at each other? Will they put up with this failure again? And these questions aren't just in our human relationships, but I think they're also in our relationships with God. Does God even care? that I'm in this place? 
Will he pursue me even here? If I go to God with this sin again, how's he going to respond? Now, Jonah, the story of Jonah, cannot answer all of the complexities of our relationship with God and how he responds to our failures. But what Jonah, especially this chapter four, is going to do is invite us to consider kind of three different ways that God approaches Jonah. And so what we're going to see is God approach Jonah in his prayer, in his pouting, and in his provocation. So those are going to be our, our three points. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to start in Jonah chapter 3, actually the last verse, just to give us a little context. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So we're... Investigating this question of whether or not God really pursues us, if there's things that we're going to do um, that, that God's going to continue to chase after us, where's the line where, where God kind of gives up on that? Um, and really it might be, how does God respond when we fail to act rightly? How does God respond to us when we fail to act rightly? Now, friendship is an interesting thing. Um, in the TV sitcom series, Big Bang Theory, it's about postdoc researchers. Um, they, they research stuff in theoretical physics. Um, and one of the main characters named Sheldon uh, struggles to make friends. And so he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to create an algorithm for friend making. And he draws it up on a whiteboard and he, he like represents it in the form of a flow chart. And so then he, with his roommates watching, calls this person that he desires to be friends with. And he starts working his way through the flow chart. 
But eventually he gets stuck in a loop over near the end because they've kind of decided on a date, but then now they're trying to decide on an activity to do together, a shared activity. And so he says, what activities do you enjoy? And then you're only hearing one side of the conversation. He goes, I don't like that activity. What, do you have any other activities that you enjoy? I don't like that activity. Are there any other activities that you enjoy? I don't like that activity. Are there any other activities that you enjoy? I don't like that activity. It's a funny scene that I'm definitely not doing justice to. Uh, but what it fundamentally teaches us is that friendships can't be reduced to algorithms. Uh, there's something fundamentally human about friendships. And I think the real test of friendship actually comes with maybe not finding a shared activity, but when conflict arises. How is that conflict going to be han handled? Are we going to run away? Are we going to run towards? Are we going to forgive? Are we going to move on? God often describes himself in friendship terms. Throughout the book of Jonah, it seems that God is Jonah's friend of sorts, although very much clearly his God, you know, appointing things. But the way that he speaks to Jonah is in friendship language. But there's a rift in their relationship. And God's been awfully patient. But this conversation that Jonah's having with God, because we recognize that prayer is a conversation. And if you look <laughs> Excuse me. At the be uh, beginning of verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord. So prayer is this conversation that Jonah is having, and he asks God this kind of um, petty and contrary to God's um, desires for the world request that he might die. It's better for him to die than to live. But not only that, Jonah like deigns to take it one step further and be like, you actually know why it's better for me to die than to live? Because you are who you are. And like, you know, children who see this story can understand how crazy this is. He's like, I knew that you were compassionate. You're like, what? I knew that you were slow to anger. I knew that you were merciful. Jonah's creating this rift in his relationship. Now, if I was in God's position, Jonah's response would really irritate me, especially at this point in the book. Like, Long-suffering after long-suffering after long-suffering. You're just kind of like, bro, enough's enough, right? Like, this is, this is toxic. I'd probably have one of two responses. I'd raise my voice to tell him, like, no, I'm boss. This is how this is going to go. Or the other one, as God, I would just be like, I don't even need to deign to answer this prayer. Like, silent treatment sort of thing. Like, this, it's not even worth responding to. I think we often believe that God gives the silent treatment to our prayers. But God doesn't give the silent treatment to Jonah's prayer. What does God do? God responds to Jonah with a question. I mean, look at the mercy of this. God had a multitude of responses at his disposal. Like he could have done anything that I just said and done it without um, harm to the relationship like I described because I would wanna act out of my own pride. Um, God has, you might say, infinite number of responses to any of our requests, and all of them he would execute faithfully. But instead, what he chooses to do is to speak to Jonah like a good friend. It's not judgmental. God's not ashamed of Jonah's expression of emotion, even if he kind of crossed a line in their relationship. He comes close and almost whispers, Do you do well to be angry? 
You see, good friends, even when there's a rift in the relationship, have an ability to sift those things that aren't worth responding to and ask the questions that really need to be asked. Why does God choose this question? I, you know, I, I think it's because God, um, being God, knows how to actually address the problem without creating further problems. So Proverbs will say it this way, a soft answer turns away wrath, right? So God speaks softly to him. He's like, okay, you're, you're kind of in a wrathful state. I'm going to speak softly to you. And this makes sense. Like when I'm angry, uh, when Margarita is trying to uh, address, you know, those two options that I gave are options on the table, but really the best ones are probably asking questions. This is the best way to get through my wrath and anger. Anger and wrath are even something that Jesus faced. Jesus, you know, facing his accusers, being spit on, punched, attached to a cross with nails. Facing that anger doesn't respond with the self-righteousness that was available to him, but responded with a soft answer. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What we see in Jesus and what we see in God to Jonah is God being fundamentally God. God is fundamentally a person that shows mercy. He is fundamentally a person who takes your prayers, even if there's a sinful expression of emotion in there, and responds to you with mercy and responds to you with a soft answer in a question. God is fundamentally a person that is about relationship with you. And he's willing to do what it takes to make it right. He's willing to absorb the cost. When we go to God in prayer, even prayer where we might sinfully handle our emotions, God comes closer, not further away. And the Psalms are full of this sort of expression of our emotions. And I'll admit that I don't do it nearly as perfectly as the Psalms. And I cross that line into charging God with his, with his own character. But what I see in Jonah is that God still comes closer. You shouldn't be afraid to pray to God. You shouldn't be afraid to tell him how you feel. He can take it. He can take your anger as silly and foolish as it might be. And he doesn't respond by belittling you, but by offering you mercy. The first response that we see from God is an invitation into deeper relationship with him. Now, the second area where we're going to see God's response to Jonah is pouting. Now, I have a story to share about uh, my own uh, uh, scene of of pouting in my own life, but I I want to make a couple things clear up front. Um, There are a lot of areas where this story goes wrong. Like, there's a lot of things that we could use to kind of address this situation, Um, and, and maybe this example might work in lots of other sermons, so maybe I'll bring it up later. Uh, But for now, we're just going to focus on the result of my pouting. So please, if you can, as you hear things that you're like, this is fascinating, um, we can talk about it later. But we're going to be focusing on the pouting piece. That's okay. So some of you know that my wife Margaret and I uh, met and started dating in high school. 
We lived in different states, so we only saw each other seldomly. And one of those times was that we got to go to each other's high school proms. So for her senior prom, I was already a freshman in college, but I traveled to Des Moines, Iowa to join her at her high school prom. But we weren't, Margarita was not exactly allowed to date in high school. So her parents had made it quite clear that we were not dating and that this was their grace, that they would like allow for this opportunity to be present. But they had made it clear that we're not to be dating and we're not to be kissing. Reminder, the story's about pouting, okay? We had previously broken this rule. And so me traveling to Des Moines, Iowa, am eagerly awaiting to break this rule again. But Margaret's conscience, by God's grace, was sensitive. And again, by God's grace, she refused. And I did in action respect that wish and by way of that her parents. But in another way, my action was pouting. I didn't really want to dance. I didn't want to meet or talk with her friends. I wasn't myself. I was sulking. I didn't enjoy my time. And I'm sure that Margarita didn't either. What do you think? She's embarrassed at this moment. <laughs> My pouting was an immature reaction to unmet expectations. And ironically, what I wanted was a closeness in relationship with this girl who I loved. But in my pouting, I ruined almost any opportunity at that. I'd created this wilderness of isolation that I willingly walked into to lick my own wounds. I wanted to be isolated. We often pout with God. Desiring closeness with him, we isolate instead. Desiring answers from him, we run to Google. Desiring wholeness, we are satisfied with broken pieces. And the ways that we do this is maybe by pouting, but but honestly, we just return time and time again to those well-worn paths of sins that bring us comfort. And isolate us from God. The familiarity of those sins seems to bring comfort quicker than vulnerability with God. Now, there's a couple things that's interesting to learn from Jonah in this respect. You see, first we see in chapter 4, Jonah prays. God doesn't answer with the silent treatment, but with a question. Jonah, though, responds with his version of the silent treatment, doesn't answer God's question, heads out east of the city. Jonah pouts. There he builds a booth, which is a form of shelter, and apparently Jonah was a bad builder because it says he was like supposed to sit under the shade of that but it didn't work very well because God caused a plant to grow that provided more shade and Jonah was, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Not for God for providing the plant, but he was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Okay, so still, um, still pouting, but a little bit more lighthearted because now he's got the shade. But then God provides a worm to eat the plant so that when the sun rises, Jonah is faint. God also appoints a scorching wind and then Jonah goes back to his well-worn, familiar paths of sin. 
and asks God to die. Familiar sins seem to bring more immediate comfort than vulnerability with God. Jonah chooses arrogance to believe that he knows better than God again. So, like, think about this, right? The first time God comes to him, way back in Jonah chapter 1, God says, hey, I want you to go preach to these people. And he's like, no, you don't. You want me to go over here. Like, I just, I know what you want me to do. And then when the sailors ask him, like, hey, what are we supposed to do? Like, what Jonah had to do was repent and turn from God. But instead, he's like, no, actually, I know what to do. Throw me overboard. It's better for me to die than to live. And here again, well-worn path. He leaves the city that he already knew. Like, he's already complained to God that God was going to show compassion on the city. But he leaves to go see what's going to happen to the city. And you're like, are you... What, what are you missing about this conversation? A second way we see Jonah lean into familiar sins is that how he likes to run from God. We've already seen Jonah go as far west, try to go as far west as he possibly could. That's um, Tarshish. So God tells him to go east, and he tries to go as far west as he can. And now he's leaving the city where he's supposed to be, and he's going as far east as he can. Jonah returns again to the well-worn sin of running away from God. Jonah is pouting east of the city. How is God going to respond to this gross display of immaturity and selfishness? God actually provides for Jonah. If you look there in the passage, you'll see this a number of times. God appoints, God appoints, God appoints. You see, I think the person, um, my, my disposition to respond to the person that's pouting is just to ignore them until they can get their act together, right? And so we think often, like, yeah, that's the natural, that's what God's going to do. Like, if I'm pouting, he's just going to leave me over here. But that's not what God does. God actually runs towards Jonah and appoints thing after thing after thing in his life. Why? To try to bring him back to his senses and say, Come live in vulnerability with me. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He's not ashamed of Jonah. Jonah's life is, in some sense, a parable. And it's, it's an example of the character of God. Um, it's, it's a, you know, he lived his life. It was a real thing that happened. But, but his life was supposed to go back to the northern kingdom of Israel and convince them to act a certain way. And what they're supposed to see from this interchange is that even in their selfish pouting and self-isolation, God pursues them even there. God pursues us and invites us into vulnerability, not only when we're speaking with him, but also when we're running away from him. Now, there's a couple of things to reflect upon here. Um, if you can think of a time in your life where uh, you, you were in a season of pouting, you were leaning into those well-worn sins for comfort, I'd invite you to reflect on those ways that God appointed and provided things in your life that were invitations back into relationship. Not saying we always heed them. Jonah didn't. He didn't listen to them. Um, but if we can, we would do well to learn from our own pasts. And the second kind of stems from that 
If you're in a season now where you're leaning in to comfort instead of vulnerability with God to those well-worn sins, be aware that God doesn't leave us there in isolation. And the things that he provides for us to invite us back in often aggravate our anger, our grief, our sadness, and our loneliness. And it's not because God is vindictive. He is trying to teach you a lesson, but he's trying to teach you a lesson like a good father with open arms. He's providing those things not not to shame you, but to say, come live in this vulnerability with me. Don't stay out there in that wilderness of your own making. Jonah stays out there in the wilderness of his own making. So we have a lot of emotional responses that come from time to time. We have maybe appropriate and understandable, which uh, might be our expressing our emotions to God through prayer. And sometimes we, we cross some lines there. Um, we have some that are inappropriate and understandable. Maybe that's like pouting. We return to these well-worn sins instead of addressing the relationship. And we're about to see maybe the inappropriate, and I mean, we can understand it as phone people, how we get here, but, um, but not understandable. And this is when Jonah provokes God. You see, this is a fascinating part of the story, because right after this, this interchange here, um, in what, nine, second half of nine, um, God asks this question, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah finally responds, Like, at first, he prays angrily, responds with silence, and heads out and pouts. When God comes and asks him again, he responds, and we get to see where his heart is. He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah provokes Let's talk a little bit about pro- like provocation, um, because you might think that Jonah provoked God at the beginning as well, uh, and th- there might be some truth to that. But I'm going to try to tease tease these out a bit. You see, at least in the first prayer that Jonah's making, Jonah's relationship to God is still a request. He asked that he might die. There's still this deference. The subtle shift of Jonah here is the doubling down on his own version of events. It's not a deference to what God is saying and is true about reality. It says, no, I know about reality. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Sometimes we say hard things to God out of our hurt and our pain, and he, he knows that. And he responds with that soft answer. But when we double down on our own version of events, it provokes the Lord. And this gets difficult to decipher in our own hearts. Like, when do we cross that line? And mostly that's because our hearts are deceitful above all things. So our hearts like to convince us that we haven't crossed that line, and it's, it's messy. So how is God going to respond when we do cross that line? How does God respond when Jonah provokes the Lord? 
God, God's response to Jonah when he provokes the Lord is a rebuke. In the story of Jonah, God gets like the first word and the last word because he's God. And the last word comes to Jonah as a rebuke. And if you remember what I said earlier, Jonah's life is lived in order that the northern kingdom of Israel might see it and respond. And the reason that the story ends with this rebuke is because Israel's supposed to see that and say, that's us. We're supposed to see it and say, that's us. We've all provoked the Lord. Um, and I think the easiest way, instead of trying to decipher where our hearts are, um, is to describe kind of what it looks like on the outside. And I'm going to use this phrase, high-handed sin. Now, we all know what we talk about when we talk about, like, say, high-handed sin. Um, finding Nemo, right, the child Nemo swims out past the reef and the drop-off towards the boat on a dare or something like that to go touch the butt, because that's what the fish think it's called, but it's a boat. So he's swimming out there. His father is back on the reef screaming at him, pleading with him, saying, get back here. And Jonah, or Jonah, Nemo looks back at, at his father straight in the eyes and touches the, the boat. High-handed sin. Sometimes we nurture sin. We look God straight in the eyes and we touch the boat. know how God responds? With a rebuke. And that rebuke, the entire purpose of the whole book kind of summarizing, is to bring you back again into that relationship of reminder. There's a beautiful example of this in the Lord of the Rings. In the first movie, there's um, a hobbit. It's a human-like creature. Um, his name is Bilbo Baggins. He possesses a ring of, like, incredible destructive power. But he's oblivious to this. And he's got a friend, a wizard, Gandalf the Grey is his name, who approaches Bilbo with the wisdom of leaving the ring behind to his heir. But Bilbo, having nurtured a love for this object and having been corrupted by it for many years, challenges Gandalf. And as the conversation escalates, he provokes Gandalf by saying, you want it for yourself. It is at this point that the wizard rebukes Bilbo. His power seeps out of him. The room darkens. He actually gets like taller and his voice changes. Like the fire in the fireplace starts dimming. And with this big booming voice, he says, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I'm not trying to rob you. And then the power somewhat subsides. The room comes back normal. Gandalf's normal height. Bilbo's rightfully scared. And he says with a kind face and almost a chuckle, I'm here to help you. God's responses to Jonah over and over and over again, just look through the whole book, are all crafted perfectly to say, I'm trying to help you. <clears throat> when we go to God with our high-handed sin, 
it sometimes feels like we can't talk to him anymore, and he doesn't want to talk to us, that we have ruptured the relationship finally. But God actually crosses that rupture to come get us. Not just with the rebuke, but the rebuke is an invitation further in. Turn from your version of events and see with my eyes. I hope you see that the point of this sermon is not necessarily to convince you to never sinfully pray to God. He can take it. Nor is it to avoid pouting at all costs. God will still find you in the isolation of your own making. Nor is it never to provoke God. He is merciful and relents. Of course, it grieves God when you do these things. You've done damage to the relationship. But the point of this sermon is for you to hear all of the opportunities that God gives you again and again and again to live a life that is lived in right relationship to him. To give up your own version of events and see with his eyes. This is what Christians call repentance. And we're supposed to live lives that are marked by it. And we believe that Christ purchased this repentance for us. And how did he go about doing that? Well, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and asked that the Lord might find another way. He didn't pray in shame. He didn't pray in anger. He lived a perfect life. By all means, he should have been answered. And he received silence. Jesus was on the wilderness on the cross, not of his own making. He didn't pout to get there. He had aggressors put him there. When God the Father turned his back on him to put him in that isolation, he cries out faithfully, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me alone here? Won't you pursue me? We commit handed sins that provoke that grace and we receive mercy Jesus bore all of the sin that provokes grace and received no mercy the wrath was poured out for all of us that is how Christ purchased this mercy to us in Christ, we see the ultimate fulfillment of God's mercy. And through and in Christ, God comes pursuing us again and again and again with mercy. He doesn't leave us isolated. He doesn't say that you failed and there's no hope. Jonah gives us three examples of how God pursues us in the midst of our sinfulness. Let us take every opportunity that God gives to turn from our own version of events and cling to Christ. 